Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Insurgent Architects House for Creative Writing podcast series. My name is Larissa Lai, and I direct the Tea House Project as part of a Canada Research Chair in Creative Writing, which I hold here at the University of Calgary. I'm Hong Kong Chinese by way of Kumaye, Biotuk, and Coast Salish territories. I currently live on Treaty 7 land, where Tea House also makes its home. Tea House specifically acknowledges the Blackfoot Confederacy, comprising the Siksika, Bigani, and Gaina First Nations, as well as the Sutina First Nation and the Stony Nakoda, comprising the Chiniki, Bearspaw, and Wesley First Nations. We acknowledge also the Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. Podcasts are produced and edited by graduate students from the English department here at the University of Calgary. You're just about to meet one of them. Hello and welcome to Tea House Talks, the Insurgent Architects House for Creative Writing podcast series. My name is Mark Herman Lynch, and I'm a research assistant for the Tea House Project at the University of Calgary. Today, we present an interview of Cecily Nicholson by Aruna Srivastava. Cecily Nicholson volunteers with communities impacted by carceriality and works in gallery education. She's the author of Triage from the Poplars, winner of the Dorothy Live Say Poetry Prize and Wayside Sang, which won the Governor General's Award for English Language Poetry. Cecily was the 2021 Writer-in-Residence for the University of Windsor. Her latest book, Harrowings, a poetic study of biome, water, soil, seed, and race, is slated to be available in summer 2022. Aruna Srivastava has spent many years working as an anti-racism educator in various community-based arts and academic contexts, focused in more recent years on the complexities and intersections of disability, illness, age, and trauma in this work. The work of reconciliation engages her specifically in that it requires storying and storing or archiving memory in many forms and repudiates forgetting. In this interview, Cecily Nicholson discusses the way she's had to reframe her relationship to activism and poetics. Cecily and Aruna talk about the impacts of COVID on artistic practice, racialized populations, and community movements. The interview provides a short reading from Cecily's latest project, Harrowings. And she answers questions on how the book of poetry seeks to reconnect Black intellectual and artistic history in relation to agriculture. With wonderful sensitivity and erudition, Cecily discusses her own experiences growing up in small-town Ontario and the broad range of communities that are interlinked through the farm. Cecily, thanks, thanks for, for joining me today. Cecily is joining us from, I'm joining you from the yeah, so-called Lower Mainland or Metro Vancouver, I suppose, but mm-hmm. um, alongside a river known by many as the Stalo. Um, this is Kikite territory. Um, Kikite, um, in some ways, connected historically to the Musqueam people. These are traditional waterways, though, of many people, in, uh, including the Kwantlen, Katesi, um, and Musqueam people, as I've mentioned, and 
the site of it's the so-called New Westminster, and it's the original capital of province of British Columbia and the mouth of the gold rush and a particular maw of colonialism in terms of the development of this Western province. So lots of unresolved things here. And as I look out on the river and check and see from my window, you know, that's, I feel like that that's the greatest teacher and the greatest lessons these days are, are in the systems of these waterways and this land beneath this city. But yeah, that's away from this coast. Do one of the things that I discovered in in reading her work and in a, a previous discussion that we had with a colleague of ours, Ashok Mather, was how many, particularly reading her poetry though, how many intersections uh, Cecily's and my lives have. And it was one of those things I think that particularly in this year of pandemic was a lot of time to reflect on those kinds of intersections that um, I, I found that quite engaging and uh, soothing times as I sat alone in my house <laughs> here in uh, Calgary, Mokinsis. Uh, Cecily is the author, as many people will know, of three books of poetry, Triage, From the Poplars, and From the Poplars with, uh, won the Dorothy Liza BC Book Prize. She's possibly best known for Wayside Sang, which won the Governor General's Literary Award for Poetry in 2018. Her activist and community work engages with carcerality and food security, and her uh, that and her poetic work examines the Black experience, especially in the Canadian nation state. Migration, uh, borders, land, sovereignty, mutual aid, environmental justice. Cecily is a museum and gallery educator, having worked at Gallery Caché in downtown Eastside of Vancouver, and in her current position at the Surrey Art Gallery. Her performances, talks, readings, artwork, residencies have been hosted internationally, and Cecily has most recently worked as a 2021 Writer-in-Residence at the University of Windsor. So I, um, again, welcome you to this, this chat and thought I would start um, on a bit of a maybe grim and downer note, which is, <laughs> okay. which is the context of this COVID-19 pandemic for us here in Alberta. It is mid-July in 2021 when we're recording this. And Alberta has joyously, joyously, joyously opened up for the stampede, which is going on mm -hmm. right now. It's opened up completely. And so we are ne negotiating what the new norm or the new normality means. Mm -hmm. Many of us are grieving uh, both mm -hmm. the new normal and what the last year has meant. And um, I was looking, when I was uh, researching for this interview, I was looking at a group show that you participated in called Pandemic as Portal mm -hmm. and thinking about negotiating pandemics as an activist and community worker. Mm -hmm. So do you want to speak at all about the pandemic as a kind of context or as, as something that has, what kind of changes has COVID-19 and the experience of it brought to you personally if you want to talk about that as an artist as mm -hmm. an activist mm -hmm. and how does it feel to be in this possible period of transition back to so-called normal 
right? So we should come back to that so-called normal, I suppose, and the normative. First of all, I would say that I'm very sensitive and thoughtful about your local conditions because my favorite family member, I don't mind saying, my little brother lives in Calgary. He is an essential worker, quote unquote, those, I don't know. Anyway, I don't know how essentially he's treated <laughs> and uh, by day, and he is a musician by night, and he is playing seven straight sets at the Stampede, and I'm just hoping his voice lasts. It's, it's such a compromising space in so many ways for racialized people, um, for somebody who's dark-skinned, visibly Black, and very much out in a public space in, in certain ways. He's noticing a, quite a confluence of what is it around anti-masking and sort of the bravado of, of uh, in the face of government edict that's sort of supported from provincial context that overlaps with this, this sort of lingering Trump kind of moment. So, so a heightened racism uh, every day that he's experiencing in your context. I mean, I think many of us are experiencing in different parts of, of Canada and beyond, but uh, I, I, I think it's quite heightened in Calgary at the moment and in Alberta at the moment. So this pandemic has certainly tethered me a lot strong, more strongly to local conditions there because of that, whereas historically, I perhaps would be just more incidental place that I pass through uh, on holiday time whenever possible. But yeah, and so the pandemic, I don't know, you know, I was thinking recently about how many requests I've had, you know, different sort of art moments or calls for poetry or participation in exceptional exhibition moments or whatever it is, uh, asking me to think through what art means at this time and, and what has been my relationship, you know, how, um, how poetry has sort of facilitated something during the pandemic. And I'm struck by the fact that for, for many of us, constantly engaged in, in crisis and, and community-based struggle that it's not that there's not been new methodology and new approaches and, and new considerations and uh, certainly in the realm of the remote and the electronic and our, our capacity to connect online. But much of our efforts and our concern have been the same. The kind of urgency has remained the same as it's been for dec- my life for decades and I think for many people, you know, intergenerationally for centuries and so on. So it's this interesting, what is it, an exceptionalism or, or just this kind of sense of unprecedented crises that for many people in the normative, I think this moment is just so dramatic. And on the other hand, for many community that I witness, it's, it's kind of much of the same, only worse. But I would say this in particular, thinking about, you know, as somebody who is roams free, freely outdoors Decide this metaphor of lockdown that we've so easily grabbed onto and with different positions on it in terms of we should be in it or, you know, we're being oppressed by it or whatever it is. And I think about that relative to people who are and actually been on lockdown relative to a prison context um, for the duration of the last 18 months or 16 months. So what is that, you know, that, what is that real experience of that? And so this, this time for me has been a heightened sense of privilege, mobility, even as my capacity and my health has you know, been a, a concern and the weight of, of labor has been extraordinary. I still feel like right now a, a, an enormous sense of possibility and privilege. And so uh, the pandemic, yeah, I think it's just helped me get my ducks in a row in terms of priorities, purpose. Um, I'm somebody who is propelled forward through through mental illness and through physical illness and external barriers and, and oppressions by way of purpose. And that purpose is inevitably connected to social and to community and relations of other people who, you know, different kinds of purposes and the ways that we interact or intersect. 
So I'm, you know, as you said, I'm delighted to meet you, Aruna. And it's kind of a, a funny moment that, that we have not met in all these years, yeah. uh, especially given how many people we have in common. So I would say that one of the interesting, other interesting things about the pandemic, and I'm, I'm just choosing to, to think about positive things at this moment, is this sort of new capacity to relate to people. I've had some just brilliant conversations, particularly in the North American context of so the capacity to do readings, you know, in Milwaukee or, or California or, um, you know, and just actually in the same degree of relationality that I would have locally. Um, so it's not to say that this is a substitute for actually meeting and spending time in real life with people, but it doesn't escape me that during this time I've had is some some of the more qualitative and, and sustained kind of conversations underway with people all over the world with access to the same technology. So kind of brilliant. In terms of the transition, I, I mean, I've had new work spring up during this time. It was, user, this has been a project that has been you know, deep in me, it's not a, a, a new phenomenon, but I've been able to uh, intellectually and somatically reconnect to elements of rurality, I guess, if that's a word, um, but my rural upbringing, and to place it in context in a way that I historically wasn't able to do in the context of Black intellectual history, of Black art history, and also broad range of communities relating to the idea of cultivation, growth, and the, uh, the concept of the farm you know, it's inherently colonial um, increment and, and violence of cultivation notwithstanding. So that project in part has rooted itself, not metaphorically, but in fact, in actual farm work for me this past year and a half. And that's been a way, so started volunteering at a place called Emma's Acres, which is a uh, so-called prison farm, who I've had relations to over the years, but um, in the absence of being able to go inside and to visit with people inside prison, which is something that's been a part of my community and relations for the past decade or so, finding new ways to connect through communication and practice outside. And so, as you can imagine, a so-called prison farm, absence of laborers who are in lockdown and desperately trying to catch up and keep up with the, the regular actual cycles that have never stopped, even as we're facing, you know, fires and dire heat and all of these mm -hmm. sort of climate shifts, the, the, the movement of ecology, the cycles of the biome, these, these have continued. And as farmers, uh, certainly a good farmer would be very sensitive and connected to. So indeed the farm trying to produce, trying to be relevant, trying to continue to exist at a time without labor, it seemed like a really good front line to settle into. But as you know, I'm also just suspicious of, of the idea of service and, and interested and concerned about the idea of mutual aid. And so acknowledging that taking on this sort of volunteer labor has also been something that has also grounded me uh, physically and mentally. And as I was starting to get involved more and more in some, you know, getting deep into the tomatoes and the chicken coop and, and, and so on, like just having all of this memory come back to me about earlier labors and practice, you know, the first 15 years of my life, essentially as a laborer on a farm, I didn't have a lot of access to the thoughtful work of a farm, but I was, I worked and worked on a farm. And I also had so much trauma during that time that it was really hard at this late stage to look back on that at all favorably. I've hated it for so long. I hated where I grew up. I hated the culture, the dominant cultures that educated me, I, I hated so much about it. I'm not sure if I've let go of that hate, but I've definitely been able to process it into, I don't know, no, just 
allow some of the cracks of beauty and, and meaning and purpose again uh, to come through. So the transition now, I think, is just to hold on maybe to some of these values, not get swept up in what people now understand that we can do things in real life and online at the same time, and the expectations of our labor around that, to learn the profound lessons of accessibility and inaccessibility, the institutions, plural of capacity to actually relate to people in a remote context through barriers of disability and so on. To take not to take no for an answer anymore because we can see when the priority is there that that these methodologies can shift, and at the same time to just value so much um, mobility, home, a safe home. You know, those of us who've had lifetimes of not safe homes, like it's just what does it mean to be in a domestic space that is safe and generative, and what does it mean to be able to go outside. That was a long ramble. Anyway, that's what the pandemic has taught me today. <laughs> well, and I, I would say too that it, to a certain extent, I was going to ask you a question about grie grieving, mm -hmm. what what we grieve in at, at times where that the whole system is is saying we are we are in crisis. But I was thinking too about grieving grieving childhood and grieving things we've lost because we we're being told that we've lost them and, and this is the this whole year and a half has been a whole sort of whole narrative of loss whether it's uh, you're an anti-maxer that feels that you've lost something deep because you're you, you know you're losing a set of rights that 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 I yeah, and I think there's a that there is a validity to that argument, or I I'm thinking about grieving death, um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and and grieving things like childhood. But as as you say, uh, one of the things I've I've certainly been mourning is the loss of connection with my immediate family, which has dwindled a lot due due to death. And yet realizing, as you say, that the I've had the extraordinary pleasure and privilege of having people living with me here in my house do the, do, during the entirety of the pandemic. And those aren't my blood relatives, but they're people who I've known all of my life. And to, to have that and to have those connections and conversations and interactions with, with them has, has been really helpful in terms of uh, and soul soothing at a time to, to be going through this with with them and so I've just written down grieving and I well let, let's chat about it for just a minute because um, it is um first of all I just you know I'd like to acknowledge like your loss and I I, I hear all the different forms of grief you just described mm -hmm. but in, in my limited experience um you know the loss of family and close people close to us is really mm -hmm. greatest of all. And the pandemic for this household started off with the loss of a parent. My, my husband lost his mom the, the week before it was declared. And so it was, it was sort of set the tone in a, in a different way. You know, I've lost a, a lot of family over the years. I have a very small, I grew up mainly in kind of care environment, intermittently foster adoptive family, and then back into foster 
okay, well, not in foster care, emancipated minor, but back into the system. And, and uh, I have a very, very small idea of family, no blood relations that I know. And I care passionately for this, uh, the, the found family that, that yeah. is, makes up my life right now. So, so acknowledging all of that, just sort of maybe my relationship to family is not the normative, um, except for in my communities where it's totally standard <laughs> anyway. But yeah, and so I think the real loss of people is like, there's nothing... You know, there's nothing to diminish there. It's extraordinary. And to not be able to pursue our rituals of grief and connection that we do do typically go to at these times is, is I think it's been harmful. I think that that's hurt us. I think it's something we're going to have to continue to recover from. I think the challenge of grief for me is that it's nonstop. I really uh, associate with my feelings around whether it's community or close people in my life or, or the bigger things, as you say, the, the loss of a, uh, a healthy world and, and loss of what all these kind of situational losses that are not about people. If I really kind of rest there, I'm going to be debilitated. Um, I've learned. I do have process around it. I, it's something I, I definitely have to work through, work into a regular part of my living my life. But in terms of what's at the surface at any given time, I struggle to not make that it or that that I struggle to make grief. What can I say? Life changing. I, I like to allow like when I have profound loss, I'd like that to be an opportunity for me to, to be a better person or to learn why that's a loss, because I find that's really sometimes very hard to realize why you feel some griefs more than others. And uh, they're usually comments also on myself, not in a selfish way, but in a responsible way. So I don't know if that's relevant or helpful but that's kind of how I've been thinking about it one thing I found in reading not just your poetic work but some of the the other work that you've written was thinking about what so to come clean I think of myself as a kind of artist and creative writer in quotation marks monkey you know not quite failed but you know some something something that I never quite got got to or feel shy about and it's, it's partly uh, from having uh, had discussions at residencies and things like that so mm-hmm. I'm thinking about because a lot of the people were involved in tea house for instance not all but many of them are creative creative writers creative practitioners and you know they have a practice of some kind and so one of the things that really interests me is is and I, I often I'm, I'm involved in and trying to involved in seeing them through a, you know, an academic practice as well. So I'm really thinking about how poetry and artistic practice can be forms of understanding activism and relationship building. I'm going to say all those three things. And because I, I see your work as doing those things rather than as being sort of separate because in academia, we often separate out the work that we do, particularly the written work we do. And I think that applies to the people often who are doing creative work, at least early on in their mm-hmm. careers. Mm-hmm. So can you just riff off that a bit? Like how mm-hmm. does, because it, it strikes me that you are very committed to the, the idea that art, you know, creative work, is not just an essential part of your life, but is essential to be doing whether it's pandemic time or any other time. And that is something that I think, well, I think people need to hear and is 
and perhaps to I don't I don't want to say theorize it, but to ha to have you sort of talk about the how strongly that is important to you, you know, the mm -hmm. the centrality mm -hmm. of of creative practice and why it's central. Well, it's interesting the way you started off there was sort of coming clean, but in terms of your perspective on creative, because I, I would say I'll, I'll come clean in, in reply and, and say that that's not dissimilar about how I feel about academia. I think of myself as a failed academic. I don't really rest in that, but that's certainly in my initial years of not succeeding with a PhD and not sort of continuing teaching in the university space and doing research in that context um, successfully, um, just so full of compromise for me. Um, that is something, something didn't succeed there. <laughs> so it was a combination of me and, and the world around me, I suppose. But so I find that interesting that you started there. I do think, I, I do think that it's very difficult for someone like myself to extract or separate out any notions of creative practice from my everyday relational social experiences. I don't, I don't know in the long run that that's going to make me the most successful creative practitioner. I'm, fairly confident that is, is not in some ways. Having said that, I'm really acknowledging and appreciating all of the successes that I have had. So I'm not trying to be modest, but I just, I can see practically where speaking, whether I'm making decisions about what to pursue. And, you know, and, and the, the fact is that I'm not really interested in writing in isolation and in, I'm, I'm not, I'm excited to be able to access my, my experiential and to put that on the page. But I'm not ever fully jazzed to do that in a, in a sense that removes it from its collective experience, because I'm really not much without that collective experience. And so activism, I've always shied away from the word. It's sort of got this kind of connotation to it. It's sort of, it's almost like it's an identity position that people occupy and then represent things. And I like to echo what many people have shared around the notion of being in defensive community and being present and with struggles that are part of our everyday may less be less about activism, more about just being accountable and present in our everyday in, in ways that matter, hopefully. I'm also just like, that's where I feel passionate. That's where I want to create things. I, I, and I think that matters. So, so this isn't a prescriptive, like there's lots of ways that people find entry points into creative practice and and it may be you know there's just an infinite number of reasons why people are inspired and and used to uh, to move and to to be express you know and then to discipline and and uh, practice um, one's expression so I don't you know this isn't prescriptive and suggest that this is the way it should be for me though that passion and that interest and the purpose as I keep talking about has um, absolutely come by way of feeling like I'm part of a broader, I, th I often talk about it as movement, it's not particularly original, but being propelled, you know, by other kinds of process and movement that's happening around me and wanting to be connected to that as my body ages and my capacity to do frontline anything, however we think through frontline and a couple of different ways of thinking about that, you know, there is a time when I every other weekend it could be out at a protest and be marshalling or to be whatever. And every other week I would be out doing some kind of on point site specific type support work or, you know, et cetera. So that's gone for me. I just, I physically can't do it and maintain a job and maintain a running practice and maintain a safe home and, and just thoughtful kind of home environment. 
two cats and a dog and all that. Anyway, and I don't have children, so I'm just a, I'm just a, a great auntie, if I do say so myself. But um, so to be to be connected and responsible for all of that, I've just I've had to shift, and and increasingly realizing that that art, though uh, not plated with activism, certainly can be recognized and relevant in the context of movement. And puts me in touch with people who who do great work and who experience incredible things that that uh, need witnessing and need amplification. There's just so much happening right now, you know, in my local, in in the nation state of Canada, in in the world. There's so much brilliant work out there. So one of the beautiful things I think that I have learned about poetry is that you don't have to be super fancy to to stay in touch with people. You don't have to be shaking hands with the mayor, you can just roll up to your local reading and be a part of that community. And certainly if you find your crew and you find your, your handful of folks that you always feel comfortable with and seek them out and make, make them get out, you know, and kind of bridge that together. These are, these are invaluable things to me. So, yeah, I don't know if I answered the question. But... No, you, you did. And it was important because it's, it's something that came up in previous conversations and it's come up quite a lot in discussions I think especially this year with people not wondering what the point of it all is but certainly in academia a lot of us are wondering what the point of it all is too Mm. Um, and Mm -hmm. why like how how we make relations and whether we have in the past been doing it well and of course Mm -hmm. we haven't but no um, no and I think, and I think that's, but it's interesting, isn't it? Like I think about these big A's, the activism, the academia, the art mm-hmm. world, all of which have failed miserably in so many ways in terms of that individuating, elevating, centralizing, institutional, blah, 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 you know, and big, big, big representation, but like little on the ground kind of moments. All of those fields are, are uh, implicated, I think. So I think this would be a good time since we've been talking a bit about poetry and creative practice to hear from you, from okay. your poetry. So the, I'm just going to share a sample of poems from my current manuscript. So with a disclaimer that the, I've rarely practiced them out loud and, and their works in progress. So bear with. Well, it was barely spring. The winter had lingered the year we needed to dig a new well. I knew well enough of septic tanks and cisterns, the metal alloys compromising, comprising pipes and insulations of prayer that kept things from bursting on the coldest snow-belted nights. Many of us awake, but for different reasons, hearing the creaks, to be wary, Early lessons in infrastructure, I would absolve myself of worry in a later and faraway future as a renter in a cloud, tethered to grids of city systems miles up from the rain barrels. To divine, a well could use a diviner in advance, this thing to do and some place to start when really we had no idea. The pond could not indicate potable, The fallow soil that sprouted rocks and hay at least was out of the way and that happened to be where the diviner encouraged the backhoe to dig. Each foot cost money. Adults went to work and children went to school a whole day and returned to no water still. 
pinched faces at the window discuss what happens if they have to stop. Maybe there is insufficient water on a property and more debt. Rock piles. How we imagined the stories in and of the dirt as it descended, which bones and artifacts became present, the butterfly stone fossils, arrowheads would become possessions, which culture we were supposed to make fun of ourselves, the dirty fingers brown and browner overturning new rocks in the rock pile, hopeful, hunting in rock piles, the legs stretched long enough to risk our small feet catching a crag. So we formed adjacent rock beds and set ourselves in to watch the sun down over a field of soy or cornrows. The sky cast bush shadows an acre off against a thin band of horizon glowing as the stars rose. After winter, those nights paved roads whitened completely as flakes piled up past cladding and through ditches, the snow fence bending one ruddy weak slat after another against the draft whose very purpose was to penetrate. These fences will figure again and again. For now, the iron rods and their constant burrow of rust are the stalwart chronicles of weather, chroniclers of weather. It had been a winter such as this that pushed deeply into the spring that flattened the longing buds into slow bursts of fragrance and relief, the time between bird calls lengthening more than had been usual, relief when finally the smell of mud struck consciousness like lilacs, only sweeter, as the heat of the sun registered warmth on skin and trickles of water coursed the driveway, running down the hill into the ditch, the water table began to rise, the rise of the pond. After the migration stock was drained and we fought and lost again to the chemical pond lined with black tarp, we turned to the front yard swamp to bend to pond the green life that fought to hold the other in an emulsion state, neither water nor mud, somewhat tadpoles. Where catching frogs was possible and even still today, one can realize terror and another creature being held, holding up a frog by its two back legs, an instant over so fast, few will ever witness it. Like the ruddy farmer boy who died before my age now, having drunk to expansion and heartened out winter after hard winter, broke into laughter. We could not hear it, but it was nice to imagine something genuine. And it was the frogs, not us, who made it clowning this holding a frog by its two back legs dance. Stump of stumps. Stump, of course, used to be a tree, though we remember it best as a stage or a seat. We sat upon it at the end of the driveway, watching a perfectly red sunset. And we knew about sailors, and we knew we had relations on islands. We shipped and were shipped. We knew what it would mean to be sailors, and we had excursions twice on Great Lakes as servants on sailboats. We took commands at the lean, thin mouth of uncles and strangers, and we ran to the prow, and we ran to the stern, and we were not sickened. Holding breath, we learned how to float in fresh water. We were able to swim. Our bellies could buoy us, our breath brethren deep, amplified our bobbing corporal bioluminescence on a surface from a dimension deep, Music 
poetry edged a farm. In Serenade, where Stump was still a tree, my Italian suitor sat and strummed his guitar underneath, having walked the country block and a half from his host family's home to sit there quietly making songs in Spanish, the language of love, a good place to rest. While they or someone who or other called him, as only a queer query made sense to my 15 years of ugly and only a queer effort could make such music. The tree was an early stage. I wish I knew more about it. I thought a maple. I thought a hardwood grade and all the gray eyes since. These efforts that took a stand, the many last stands of trees and ditches along a field and cultivated tracks, scarring. From that time, the dog in the babysitter's farm took my head in its mouth. Having had four dogs at any time and not one ever having, ever having taken a head in its mouth, it was a time to remain calm. Once one nibbled too hard, hungry for food, to bite the hand and fingers of kids are brittle, or worried for that dog in the aftermath. Oh, aftermath. To read intent and understand when discernment was needed in advance is a good skill. But it is a mean one that wants to encompass the brain in a maw of longing, to drag something sweet away to devour alone in a house, even a dog's. This is not my beautiful dog house. This is not the dog bed that was a comfort of fleas and poets fallen and hiding and a kind of comfort worth visiting. I have my head, the little memory of it, just these two marks on either cheek. Hit to road. Memoirs always are too soon, so I guess that means never. These nails that stuck out of a broom over the head that punctured the scalp, they organized running, learning to run. These gravel road knees, sets of scars, trying hand signals that we taught were taught in gym class, like the tractor was watching to see which direction I would turn a quarter mile back since twice as fast really on my red BMX from the National Tire Company. I had saved and saved first for my clock radio that raised me for the early short bus and babysitting work once I got to it, my number one transportation. The red was wheels and frame and spokes and seat even to be like the sister who got on a bike and essentially rode it skipping past train wheels amongst the boys. It remains legendary. This is the last poem here. My labors cracked along a nose. I trust nose scars. I trust we have something in common. Even if it was from years of playing hockey, backhand, bat-born beam, that chainsaw, the tire shrapnel, or a breakout of obscene proportion, chances are we have something in common between us. Not this iron rod aforementioned. It always purposed itself a fence pole, always prodded up from banks, from the banks of winter, and it had no intent. Above all, I was triumphant that day. I was so bad off, I got taken to the hospital. The golf ball pushed my skin permanently into a crease that matches my frown now, and I think it works. And that doctor, so sweet, leaning in, sort of talking to me, changed something. That's it for now. Thank you. That's wonderful. So can you tell me a bit about this new collection, Benny? Mm -hmm. 
So like, as I was saying earlier, just being able to reconnect of late to this sort of, I say somatically because it's, you know, there is an overcoming of traumatic memory or just the ways that trauma memories become so big, they balloon out and sort of push out the sort of gentle, the, the arrival of spring or whatever. And also even how trauma memories, as I try to address in this series of poems, of just intimate interpersonal domestic violence that I experienced a fair bit of in my younger years, that 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 experience in and of itself also had nuances of sensory realities and, and that they were not separate from, but actually integrated in the environment that I was in. And then to, to see that alongside the trauma of actual agricultural culture in rural southwestern Ontario, where I grew up. So that's sort of an impetus, but the, the bigger kind of broad strokes for me right now is trying to just situate my small experience in the context of a, a grander one or a longer one, thinking through Black intellectual histories relative to agriculture, through to transatlantic slave trade and the formation of plantations and, and crops, and understanding also just the various movements around farm and farm farmers' rights and, and positioning in multiple societies. So thinking through, you know, farmers at the Punjab in a particular moment, thinking through the impact of the pandemic and our local farmers, thinking through watching this sort of return to an artisanal kind of somewhat bougie version of, of specialized food culture, and then thinking about the, the real experiences of food insecurity just locally, uh, which is everywhere. You know, Emma's Acres, the farm that I talked about, you know, they support this, you know, the sort of people who are in temporary release or uh, day passes or parole. They also support people in recovery. They support families who have relocated to the area to live in proximity to people who are imprisoned. And they also support um, victims of crime. And so it is a quite an overlap um, of need and, and possibly of conflict therein. So all of that is somehow coalescing around a sort of narrative project, more syntax than I'm used to, but it seems kind of necessary right now the more proper syntax, I mean, so I guess suppose there's always syntax. And the sort of relief peppered throughout this, this manuscript is kind of falling back on kind of the tropes of the almanac, so the farmer's almanac, which I, I do as a point of just joy, because I think we're all ridiculously sometimes fascinated or, or ridiculous, it's too, it's too strong, but we're, we are pulled in directions of uh, fortune telling in different ways. Um, and it seems more so in recent years including my folks around me, including myself. So looking at that kind of predictability or, or sort of forecasting is potentially joyful. Think about different ways of interpreting and understanding that practice is in, in more meaningful ways. And, and, and Denise Freire de Silva talks about it as a reading practice. And I think that that makes a lot of sense. And yeah, so I'm just I'm trying to interlay a lot in there, I guess, but a dense agricultural narrative, as it will were, and it's it's and one that complicates a uh, dominant narrative in Canadian context. As I certainly grew up as somebody who's just perpetually out of place on land, as is the case for many of us, and to this day still almost a disbelief to be rural in any context, whether rural or urban or, or uh, hybrid. I just don't make sense to. Uh, any of them so yeah or, or people was, assume yeah yeah Sorry. and that that was certainly that's certainly one thing even at my advanced age that I get and our family gets we we when we immigrated to Ontario we immigrated to a small village in Mennonite country in southwestern Ontario 
and the oh, village by the way sorry it was west matrose so okay. it's not not quite as far southwest as yeah. you are but it was it was outside of we went to a, a small town school or bust in that kind of thing and the 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 interesting part is to grow up in our late childhood and teen years in predominantly Mennonite schools. I actually went to a, a sort of a charter Mennonite school for a couple of years. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And to grow up with, with that kind of ethos, we didn't farm, we had stable. And then to even hear now that kind of disbelief that we, this large brown immigrant family had settled there in the 60s and 70s. Mm -hmm. um, we certainly were the only racialized set of children in the schools, in the high school. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, it can be quite brutal. And it, it was, it was it, well, in some ways we, we were taught, you know, we were taught not to, sort of taught not to notice in a way, but it does come back as a kind of residual it is a trauma, but it's not a it's not a visceral trauma. It's a residual trauma. Suddenly realizing why certain things happened and the experiences of the of the racism of teachers in particular. Mm -hmm. uh, Hard to trace that. That's an interesting distinction. So you sorry, residual versus visceral, visceral because yeah, certainly yeah. I, you know the visceral traumas of being uh, sexual abuse or violence. Um, I certainly experienced differently. But the those kinds of traumas that we we had been trained mostly by parents and educators and so forth to just ignore, mm -hmm. um, and then realized it was mostly when I went away to university that I realized no, there's something wrong here. <laughs> um, so it 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 took a while, but but I do remember also with great fondness growing up in that environment. Oh well, and that's it is interesting trying to yeah. sort out, you know, because I have this memory of just being put outside with my whatever collection of siblings and, you know, be back before dark kind of thing. And then roaming across, you know, this idea of property line. Like I still think about that, you know, way that I never can, yeah, I've just never been able to move in the city. Nobody does. And so just, just vast tracts of land that I literally covered on by foot or bicycle and, and what that taught me. And that's, these are the lessons that, you know, as we look to Leanne Simpson's work or, or just you know most prominently but uh, but others in terms of the lessons of land I mean I I am struggling in this work to to come to terms with having for uh, so long in my life constructed land is conflating the idea of soil and land so this is inherent sort of sense of productivity or instrumentality uh, but but really filtering down to to what I learned in that place and and letting those lessons come back to me or surface has been really lovely so it is an interesting moment and, and I you know it's funny is the moment we started talking about it but you just you kind of wonder how many other stories like this are out there and I'm I'm looking on the landscape of Canlit and I'm looking on the landscape in North American literatures and I see much more affinities uh, not in in the United States in certain ways there's, there's lots of there's a kind of reception that I've, I've experienced differently in um, uh, other parts of this continent but yeah, so it's a, it is interesting and definitely not fully unique. It certainly felt weird and unique at the time. I wouldn't use the word unique; it would have been weird. But you know, and certainly by the time I tried to 
migrate to Toronto. I left quite early. I, I didn't. I was on my own. You know, we moved. That family broke up, and we moved to a small town. And for a brief moment, and then I basically was just, was, I had to move on from that family experience. And, and unfortunately, my brother was um, apprehended. And so there was a sort of terrible kind of like my high school years was was quite up and it was just all over the place. I went to a lot of different schools and whatever. But when I finally landed in Toronto, which had been my lifelong dream, uh, once I learned about it, and I'd been to Toronto once, you know, a few times and it's like, my eyes are so big. But Toronto, that was, uh, you know, when I got there, I was 18 and yeah, just kicked my ass. I ended up my last year in the Jane Finch corridor trying to finish being in university, but really, really, really fucked up honestly, and starving, <laughs> like literally hungry and, and needed to, to leave the city and went back to a, a smaller, went to London, Ontario, which not necessarily better, but in a different way was safer. So yeah, this, this early part of my life was just, it's a bit of a blur that I'm still kind of sorting through. But, but yeah, the whole time thinking, thinking of myself as a very weird person. So now it's, it's kind of like joyfully situating that in, in some context multiple kinds of context, whether it's the racialized experience generally in, in uh, rural ex- examples, whether it's an intellectual and art history, which has always been the most grounding. I, I find that those are the things that have been kept from all of us. And that's not just for us in terms of our own family or, or uh, genealogy or, or social condition, but I mean, generally in terms of the relationship to broader narratives and, and contemporary practices in art and literary, we have this expectation of what, what that's supposed to be, and it continues to exclude all sorts of things. So, yeah, and in literary education as well, she says with a modicum of bitterness. So, so I wanted to ask. I'm going to ask you a question that I would like to ask because this comes directly from work that. I have done with Primary Colors, that a group of, mm-hmm. in, in um, Victoria, Chris, and Bronx. Mm-hmm. But it's, it came up and it had a huge impact on me when, so this is now 2017, I think, when the, the elders there met, the old people, not the elders necessarily, but the older folks met. Mm-hmm. And about five of us met to talk about how to provide a kind of continuity of history in BIPOC in the BIPOC, in BIPOC arts in Canada because we as people who are getting older Lillian in particular Lillian Allen in particular felt that we weren't we weren't doing enough that people were dying people were getting ill and that the, the we had to do something programmatic to mm-hmm ensure that there was this continuity of history and she called it a kind of cultural forgetting I sometimes call it amnesia and so I do ask this question to everybody you know is is it a problem is it just natural mm-hmm. um mm. the the continuity of is is continuity the right word but mm. do do you see this operating in in the in the circles and the communities that you work in particularly with the increased mainstream interest even if it's a bit on the superficial side in say black history black artistic and creative practice and so forth you know that's all of a sudden we seem to have discovered it kind of thing (laughs) yeah well i mean and and lots in that question so let me just try to, to piece it out 
first of all, you know, shout out Lillian uh, over here too. What a what a wonderful presence through the years. No surprise that kind of wisdom can, in perspective uh, comes from her. Had a little bit of opportunity a couple of years back to spend time with her in Toronto and, and to witness her teaching in her classroom spaces. And it was extraordinary. Extraordinary not just because of her as a figure, but also just seeing what her students were doing and doing with and for each other. Um, it was a kind of camaraderie and, and uh, collaboration that I had not really witnessed before in a classroom space. And I don't think it was performative. It seems so natural. So I really admire her practices as an educator. Obviously, her practice as an artist and a poet and, and just that musicality that has found her. And she carries old roots, as all of us do, uh, potentially, some of us more so than others, well beyond this continent. So I, I, that's a good place to start. And I, and I love the, I mean, I think old people or elders or whoever, you know, I think we need to, whoever, they, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not allowed to call myself, I've been getting corrected to not think about myself as old. Some of it's my, just my aging body feels old before it's time in certain ways but as as I age in middle age now I do think it's important for us to continue to gather and have these conversations and to recognize each other even as we're not wasting time waiting for a broader uh, dominant narrative or presence to recognize us and we've learned these lessons and we've learned that it matters more in some ways but continuity I'm, I'm inclined to say that continuity is a lovely value there's lots of things that are uh, I'm sure continuous that are not positive but continuity in terms of our long histories and the long histories that we carry so whether or not it's it's the the short lifetimes that we've had and what we've given but then there's all the things that we carry in our education and experience as well so to have these drop off and not continue or not become things that are legible whether it's through you know a poetry text mm-hmm. or you know recorded lecture or whatever it is or a conversation with shared storytelling and and sad dog over there anyway um so whatever it is that we've missed um in terms of making that uh, permanent permanent uh, rather I, I do think is is a concern and uh and no doubt we're losing some of elements of that all the time meanwhile the archive is serving lots of other interests historically um so i mean that the ways in which that archive i mean yes we've got a contemporary moment that is way more concerned with all bunch of things so um, I would say foremost um, is the, the, the very imposition of the Canadian state on Indigenous sovereign land. So let's, you know, let's begin there. And once we begin there, what kind of possibilities does that do mean for shifting um, a sense of racialized migrant, immigrant and forced movement into these lands? What, what is our history relative to that? It's such a pivot. Um, we're not, we're still working it through. Aren't we? In terms of, of Black culture, highly suspect to me when you have institutions. I can think of the institutions that I've been a part of over the years and the things that they're saying and doing now, and the things that 10, 20 years ago, they were doing the opposite and how brutal these environments were. So I'm pretty suspicious until a lot more changes. But I'm also just suspicious because, you know, we have a long history of consuming Black culture. That's our, that seems to be the favorite thing to do with Black culture to fetishize and consume it mm-hmm. and we do that by um we we do that for a few people but we we don't do that systemically so if there's systemic change i'm watching some of the major hires happening beautiful beautiful hires happening in the institutions right now it is hopeful 
you know, I'm seeing, you know, a kind of activism that is quite popular, which is extraordinary. I'm seeing abolition roll off the tongues of so many people right now. And I can remember doing a reading. I used to have, I belonged to a prison abolition group for many, many years. And I remember having that in my bio and people being like at a reading being questioned on, wasn't that Angela Davies? Like, isn't that kind of like the 1970s? <laughs> like literally feeling comfortable saying that to me and and having to, so, so now to have it be this sort of, I'm almost gonna say popular in a leftist sense anyways, thing, um, or even as to be on the landscape as a point of consideration does seem extraordinary. And then it makes me think, well, then what is the new work? What is the mm-hmm. new, what is, what is the, what is the behind, what is the small, small detailed work that we have to continue to do? Because in the meantime, all our intersections. So what does this mean for our, our queer and disabled community? What does it mean for our profoundly classed outside of the institution people who have never accessed a university space, are not going to a poetry reading, are struggling to get from point A to point B in terms of income and food. So it, to me, it's sort of all, it's not, all or nothing sounds dramatic, but it really is, it's always, it's always going to be a struggle until that all is, is risen with um, the tide. So yeah, the work is important. That all of this kinds of work is important. Um, and I think the, the quiet, thoughtful on the ground work that I witness all the time, people who are never going to be on this side of a, you know, a Zoom call or, a, a, you know, camera or recording and, and who don't necessarily want to be, and so I don't mean to suggest that they're, or we need to, but, but are doing, doing the work. Like, I just love them. I just love them so much. So, yeah. But the, you know, the last thing I would say on it is that I, for my own, to my own heart, I really have to keep striving to separate out from a BIPOC moment in certain ways. I, I feel there's a long history and we've chatted a little bit about this, but certainly in this local in the last 21, 20 years for me, a real conflation with the achievements of BIPOC as a whole conglomerate without understanding anti-Black racism, which is very prevalent and then this West Coast more so in different ways than I've experienced in other parts of Canada and continues to be this, this persnickety thing. So I, I just, I'm not, I'm a little wary the moment it gets the, that conglomerate acronym. It's, it's, it's not enough to, 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 to throw it in as a whole. And then so when I, and that said, like, I, I love my intern, whatever experiences, and really, that's my life, is, is that is perpetually every day, my experiences and around multiple kinds of people, I choose mm-hmm. to be interacting with multiple communities, but, but uh, yeah, I think it's, it's important to be specific. Yeah, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly, there's been lots of discussion here in the, well, with both the ongoing kind of corporati- corporatization of anti-racism work specifically, not just diversity work, but also how it's even here in Calgary, where it wasn't super popular, except in schools, I think, where how, how it's come to, it's in high demand. It's not the people who have been doing it for a long time, those folks aren't in high demand, and they're often in community where where they don't have the kind of cachet or whatever it is that say uh, Alberta Health Services needs or something like that. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. So well, that's interesting yeah. to see. And often they're, they don't, they, they're still quite clueless really about what the engagement in organizational change would mean. Yeah, 
Yeah, I think that's important, all of those observations. And I think we do need an intergenerational approach and we need to, to think through language. I mean, it's very, we age out of our language. Our language becomes obsolete so quickly. So having to, you know, for those of us who, have, you know, maybe in the 80s or 90s, not me for the 80s, but for the 90s for sure, um, would have engaged in, in uh, anti-racism, anti-oppression uh, work in an organized way, occasionally paid, but generally volunteer yeah. um, or generally out of necessity in a workspace or whatever it was. You know, the ways that I, I personally, uh, my discourse, I constantly, it's it requires updating. Um, so I think that's part of the challenge is that we have a, a really actively engaged sort of shift in language that I really respect because we know how important language is. But yeah, I would love to see more intergenerational kind of practices that look through the OG kind of old school yeah. memory um, and connects it with this, this kind of contemporary experiential. And yes, the, the commodification of that is, is hard to, to see. I also, on the other hand, we're in an era where we're like, we, everybody gets paid, you know, and, and I agree, actually, but it's still kind of a little bit weird and but the, the work of anti-oppression and anti-racist work for people who are racialized in particular nuances that are being discussed um, is very difficult work. And this, I'm telling you this, you already know this. Mm-hmm. It's typically the experience is to go in and experience a bunch of racism and oppression and then, and then manage it mm-hmm. in, a, in a learning environment and facilitate something on the other side of it. So I don't do that work anymore, certainly, unless I have to. And, you know, in my workspaces or others where it's constant because it is constant in all of our spaces, it takes a lot, a fair bit of focus and energy. I was laughing recently with a couple of people about a show most recently, but just like those of us who've had this history and then now to be in environments where we're taking classes and stuff on anti-oppression or, or um, bias, what's the explicit, implicit bias? Anyway, this is a big bias, thing, yeah. right? It's a big thing. And I don't I'm I think it's like, hmm. And I can be there and I can support my colleagues maybe in a different way as they're trying to witness, especially my, my white, white folks, like trying to figure it out genuinely, sincerely. I'm, I'm there for that. But it's so fascinating. And I'm like, what is, so is this going to happen until we're end of days, right? Or Probably. Perpetual? Yeah. <laughs> like, anyway, maybe we'll yeah. get somewhere. But in the meantime, I think the, the world will continue and evolve and move us mm-hmm. along no matter what. And it's the, the bigger bigger uh, cycles are not going to be about these interpersonal things. They are going to be about the state of the world around us and our access to safe, secure water, food, shelter, and an environment that's not on fire, flooded, et cetera. And I don't, so part of me, it's not that I'm waiting for that, but I'm just, I'm not, I don't want to be naive. What matters most. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah, that was a great thing. How do I okay, that? well, thank you so much. We hope you enjoyed this interview of Cecily Nicholson by Aruna Suvastava. I'm Mark Herman Lynch, and you're listening to Tea House Talks. We recognize the generous support of the Canada Research Chairs Program and the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council. We also appreciate the support of the Faculty of Arts and the Department of English at the University of Calgary, where our offices are housed, as well as the guidance of Mark Stokel at the Taylor Family Digital Library. Tea House is run by Larissa Lai, Mahmoud Ababne, Paul Meunier, Ryan Stern, Shazia Hafiz, Shu Yin Yu, and myself. Our music is Monarch of the Streets by Loyalty Freak Music. Stay tuned for the next episode of Tea House Talks, 
For more on the work of Tea House, including symposia, panels, and readings, please check out our website at www.teahouse.ca. That's teahouse, T-I-A, house.ca. If you'd like to be in touch, send us an email at tiahouseyyc at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening.